KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? Now, let's get to it. This week, we look at how to let things go. Studies show it's good for your physical and psychological health. But nobody said forgiving is easy. All I want is for the cop to say, you know what, I had no reason to search your car. We cannot change the past. We can only hope to heal it. We talk about the journey to forgiveness. Then she borrowed and scammed for years to support her opioid habit. I was going to work every day. Sharp is a tech, but I was at home throwing up in the mornings when I didn't have my pills. A New Jersey recovery advocate explains how she went from losing her hearing to finding her voice. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is forgiveness in a culture that works to cancel people forever, both online and in the real world. On one hand, we're the land of second chances where criminal justice reform is in full swing. But on the other side, if someone says the wrong thing or offends sensibility, they can be fired, boycotted, and relegated to a proverbial prison indefinitely. With a new year comes a clean slate, so when is it time to forgive someone and move on? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Chad Dion Lassiter. He's executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. He's also an expert on race. We have sister Kathy Nurney. She's director of the Institute for Forgiveness and Reconciliation at Chestnut Hill College. We have Diwan Williams. He's a manager of the Restorative Justice Program at Mural Arts of Philadelphia. And finally on the phone, we have Lou Berrios, who went on a forgiveness tour after being shot outside of his home. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to just lay the foundation, um, Sister Kathy. What exactly is forgiveness and why is it important? Yeah, think of forgiveness as a gift that we are offered and that we willingly receive. And it's a gift to release the hatred, the bitterness, the desire for revenge that can well up in our hearts after we've been harmed or seriously wronged by another. So this uh, power to release it is sort of an inner uh, urge or in faith terms, we could call it grace, but it's an inner urge to let go of this bitterness and hatred so that we can free ourselves from what keeps us bound. And then we can free the others that we also hold bound yeah. for and something what, they've done to us. And so forgiveness is not just for the person forgiven, but also for the forgiver. For the forgiver, yes. It's the release of that bitterness that grows after we've been hurt and that makes us hard. Yes. And once that's released, we then desire to release others from it as well. Ooh, forgiveness can bring you so much. Now, I want to talk to Chad. We live in a in America where we believe we're the land of second chances. And yet, council culture has run rampant. 
Certainly. There, there are times where people will look at things and they will say that, that that's an egregious act and you can't forgive. But I think what forgiveness does is it removes us out of the spiritual quicksand and it creates a newer, uh, a better notion of who we are as human beings. It's really about humanity. How can we transcend ourselves and our humanity to serve others, even in the midst of something tragic or egregious? So on a historical level, I'm reminded of Nelson Mandela being in prison for 27 Mm. years and coming out and walking into the presidency of the ANC, but also here in the city of Philadelphia, the birthplace of democracy, receiving a freedom award with F.W. the clerk who actually imprisoned him. And so that that release that the sister talks about is essential because even with the council culture, it's let's look at things Case by case, not let's not look at a teacher who uh, spews the N word and be so quick to say, let's fire her because that same teacher might be in an environment in which young people are saying the N word. And when she's looking for recourse, the superintendent of schools is like, go back to the classroom. And and I remember that case and I remember that case and we'll come back to this. But Lou, I got to bring you in here. You were shot in the back, went through a grueling recovery, but chose to forgive the gunman. Why? Um, I had to. I, I had to find a way to, one, recover. And I do want to say this, that when I was shot before I, I passed out, you know, I sent the prayer and I, and I asked God not. You know, I don't want to die. My, my last words is, I don't want to die, God. I don't want to die. And so open my eyes and, you know, I had to, like, recalibrate my whole mind and thought on, do I leave from this hospital? Do I sit in this hospital all these weeks and hate the people who, who shot me? Or do I just, you know forgive them and say, you know, I'm moving on with my life and I'm going to try to recover and, and pick up the pieces of my life and move on. It was a, a, a challenge. It was a challenge, but it was something that I had to do in my own, for my own experience. Because laying in that hospital bed better may have even slowed your recovery. His injuries are very, were very profound, but he's, he's healed. He's still dealing with it. And I'll come back to you. Daiwan, you work with men and women who done wrong, and yet they want to give back to society what they took from it. Explain why it's so necessary for that forgiveness for somebody who needs to be forgiven. Because in order to heal, you you, you know, you need an opportunity to, in order for you to uh, be able to be delivered from a place that you're coming from, you need the opportunity to do so. In order for you to get to the other side of the country, you got to take an airplane. You need a vehicle to travel. It's always easier said to say, you know, you should just get this guy right here a chance. You know, he was selling drugs and he shot somebody, but... Now he's changed. But at the end of the day, we have to start somewhere. You have to, you know, or we are just going to be chasing our tail, running in a circle. That means that every time you borrow money from the bank, even when you pay the tab, you will forever owe the bank. And it's like you can be forever defined by one day in your life. And so and let's talk about that, Sister Kathy. I mean, because forgiveness is one thing, you know, so we could say, okay, I forgive you. But I don't ever want to see your face again. Is that enough? There's a next step to it. Right. Well, let me just return to your saying about uh, something happens in one day and it can never be undone. So we cannot change the past. We can only hope to heal it. And so Mm. what we can't delete from our memory we remember in mm-hmm. order not mm-hmm. to retaliate, not in order to ruminate on the wrongs done us, but to find a way to heal it. And um, that means that I do it not just for myself, 
but I also then begin to want to rediscover the humanity of the person who hurt me. So that saying, I never want to see your face again, is still regarding that person as in some kind of a demonized way mm. or, or we've made them less than human. And it's when I really understand uh, through, I think, the virtue of empathy that I, too, am a human being and I, too, make mistakes. And until I can realize that about myself, then I begin to see that that other person made a mistake, too. None of us is the worst thing we've ever done. We're always more than that. And what I need to discover is the power to separate the wrong done from the wrongdoer. We have all done things wrong. And people sort of say they don't say a sin is a sin. They say, well, your sin is your, worse than my yeah. sin. Wow, exactly. And it's like a judgment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's also a rediscovery of our own humanity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so when you look at it, for me, coming out of the black church tradition, um, I've made some mistakes in life, but that grace and that mercy that's been provided, well, it's also recognizing that, you know, therefore the grace of God, there go I. So there are some of us who we could have went down the wrong road, that journey to make sure that we establish a discipline within our spiritual selves to make sure that we engage in a higher moral compass, a moral imperative, and an ethical ambition. Because there are times where you can make one mistake, and that mistake should not be the thing that defines you. So when we're looking at the aspect of criminal justice reform, we also have to recognize that there are individuals who are the victims' families who may not be at a level of forgiveness. And we have to be able to make sure that we don't rush to get back to a sense of normalcy, that we hear their spirit and we listen to them intently when they say, I'm not at a place to forgive. But the reality is there's, through the method of restorative justice, opportunities where you can sit across from one another and you can see their humanity and you can empathize with their pain that several things will never occur. So if their child was going to get married, that'll never happen again. You'll never be able to give your daughter away if it was a, a daughter that got murdered. But I think what happened in this era of criminal justice reform, we want to earnestly say we need to get everyone out and what we need to do is not hear the voices of the victims' families. And I want to say this because, Lou, we talked a little bit off mic and you said that forgiveness is a day-by-day thing for you. It is. When I, when I share my story, you know, I, I try not to push the agenda of, like, forgiveness, you know, especially mm-hmm. people who have been impacted by, you know, um, gun violence or hate crime um, because everybody's at their own level. And, mm. and I, I found this out myself that, you know, when I wake up and I have that nightmare of being shot or um, I feel that pain um, or I go day by day with, you know, with the dilemmas I go through because of this gunshot, I have to actually sit down and rethink and be like, you know what, I don't want to hate these people, you mm. know, and, and, and it's something that I have to practice every day. It's not, I don't, I didn't wake up one day and just say, you know, I'm going to forgive somebody who tried to kill me, you know, I was enduring a lot of pain. I had to release and I had, I had, didn't know no other way. So it's something that I do practice every day. And, and Dawan, I got to ask you this question. Your son was recently shot. Were you able to forgive the shooter in that case? Absolutely. And why? Because I myself, I mean, I used to participate in criminal, willingly participate in criminal activity. I myself, I know what it's like being young, I know what it's like growing up in the most dangerous neighborhoods and communities in America, in the world. I know what it's like growing up without no leadership. I know what it's like growing up in North Philadelphia 
I know what it's like growing up with no father, nobody there to teach you how to ride a bike, tie your shoe, right. uh, tie a tie. I still don't know how to tie a tie. My son, Little Dewan, ties my ties for me. Wow! So all them pictures everybody see when I got my suits on and I'm going to all of these big executive places and all that, my son, my 14-year-old son, ties, a t- ties my tie for me. So I was able to forgive his shooter mm-hmm. because if his shooter had the same resources that my son, Little Dewan, have, he would not been at a football game to shoot at somebody else. Yeah. That's just what it is. And you that's know? recognizing the humanity of another person by looking at the humanity within yourself. Sometimes uh, we're asking people to forgive who have not learned or been taught how to forgive themselves. Yeah. yeah. Okay, how can I ask you to forgive me for all of my past crimes and all of the person that I used to be and accept me back into society when I haven't, me personally, I haven't yet accepted my father not being there. That's a great point. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think I'll ever be able to accept that. Yeah. I want to have a conversation with him. But people can forgive and, others before they forgive themselves, right? sister. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and yeah. what I want to say, though, in response to Duan and his description of how he could forgive someone who shot his son because he was in that situation, I think there is a way for us to recognize that there is often a victim on both sides of the gun. That's right. Absolutely. And and that's exactly what Dewan just described. So our common humanity becomes the most important focus for any kind of restoration. And um, it's, it's both the person who was harmed the offender who did the harming, who also lost some of his humanity in that act. We weren't born to hurt each other. Right. Yes. And, 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 we- and I got to before before I want to bring you in here, mm-hmm. uh, Chad, to talk about a shift a little bit, because people treat violence and and things a little crimes against the person a little bit differently than they treat crimes against, quote, society. So, for example, we are very uh, okay with uh, forgiving somebody who maybe offends our physical body in some ways. But if they are, they say something that's quote racist or homophobic or transphobic or hate hateful. We are like cancel them. They deserve to be fired. We should never speak to them again. What's the difference? Well, you're absolutely right. I think oftentimes we personalize it, and then when you look at it in a larger space, people will say, "Well, you use the N word," or people will say that you know you're homophobic or you're xenophobic. And so when it becomes those things, I think it becomes challenging. But I think on that side of things, or that side of the equation, it's structural. So when you're looking at things from an institutional standpoint, a structural and systemic uh, issue, I think that's the challenge. So, for instance, we want our police on every side of the color line and gender line to see our humanity. Yeah. We don't want them. To, we don't want them to see us and then kill us with impunity. We also don't want them to engage in cover up behavior in an institutional setting. We want our jobs and our spaces that we work at the workplace not to be rife with with racism. We want to be respected for whatever our protected class is. I think when it's individualized, it's easy to look at that but even historically when we look at the original sin of our democracy which for me was slavery how do we look at what has been done to us and then the generational trauma and reconcile that within our own humanity and I think one of the ways we do that is we have to become prisoners of hope we have to be able to push back against the bondage that keeps us in camp and what we do with that bondage is we break through and we sense a a level of freedom because I almost think that people who have been like you think about all the, the discrimination women have suffered, people of color have suffered. If you did not forgive, could you really continue to live in a country that you feel consistently hurt oppressed by? Hurt people, hurt yeah. 
people. Right. And, and it's it's almost like you can't. And I got to ask Lou this question because Lou has forgiven the gunman, but he has since undergone some other trauma in his efforts to recover. For example, his identity was stolen and they cashed the check, the victim compensation check he was scheduled to get. And then the agency that gave him the that was sent him the victim compensation check almost implied that maybe he was involved in the stealing. Are you able to forgive them? You know, I was asked that question, and, there were, and, and people always tell me, like, how do you forgive somebody who is going to try to take your life versus somebody who took a check from you? And, um, you know, I, I look at it like it, it was it was beyond that because, you know, VCAP, the agency who issued the check, you know, made me feel, it's almost like check is an institutional thing. So, they, so this institution that should have, like, how can I say? Uh, helping you? Should have this, yeah, helping me. Um, versus saying, like, when I tell them, like, somebody, I can show you who did it. Um, they stole this check. They, you know, due to your, your fault for putting my social security number, they have an ID out in my name. Right, um, right. But and they I stole mean, my I, identity. Hey, Lou, not to cut you off, right? But I understand mm-hmm. all of that. But we're talking about somebody intentionally shot you, right? Or whether intentional or not, you forgave him for that, but you can't forgive me if I said you a thief? It, it wasn't about uh, being a thief. It was about the people who stole my check. Um, but it, I understand that. Explain why. why. It, it was it was more because um, I, I have been subject to like uh, racism and being in, in in places of discrimination. Right. So that's when I have this agency, yeah, I had this agency telling me that you know that I or implied that I, I had something to do with cashing of this check. Mm-hmm. It was like no, when you find this person, you have to take him to court. You have to. Well, I have to get some type of justice because I have to clear my name of this. It's like almost like he separated the because it was his character that was yeah, the victim was, in mm-hmm. this case. In that case. But still, you have to personalize whatever it is, whether it's the character, whether it's because they said it loud or whatever it is, you personalize. Yeah, but I think the, I, I think the one of the things is that there's levels of trauma and there's levels of forgiveness. Absolutely. So when you look at the Tree of Life synagogue shooting um, in the Jewish tradition, you don't have to get back to you don't have to forgive a person until they've actually atoned for what they've done. And it's OK to not forgive. But just know that if you don't forgive, it's a journey. And by not forgiving, you will stay in bondage forever. And so there are people who they have that right to not forgive. But I think and it what, could take time because he was still going through it. And go ahead, sister. Yeah, I, I, know, give you- I, I do want to say that forgiveness takes time and the journey mm-hmm. is something that. We simply have a willingness to start out on. And then we move through stages. And um, one of the things that Lou said that I want to make sure I underline is that there is a difference between forgiveness and the need to seek justice. So when Lou said that um, what he wants is justice for this wrong that was done, he's been falsely accused, and there is someone who needs to be held accountable for this. Then I could could, uh, uh, forgive you. Absolutely. So we do want to hold people accountable. Why? Because it restores the humanity to that person who did the offense. Because Mm -hmm. if I don't hold you accountable, then I'm feeling like you're less. You don't even deserve it. No, I want you to take responsibility for what you did. And so forgiveness doesn't mean um, that you don't you do not like pay your debt to society. Yes. yes. Right. But, But can I say exactly. And on that note. Right. Because I feel, Lou, I, that's why we need to talk these things out. Because, listen, when that cop video went viral, right, mm-hmm. 
all I want is for the cop to say, you know what, I had no reason to search your car. You, you know what I mean? I, and, I just wanted- and just for clarity's sake, for people who don't know, Dawan Williams, the way I met him was I did uh, we did a story together, um, investigated a deep dive story. He had been pulled over over a dozen times in a very short period of time, driving his car, uh, never given a ticket, but pulled over. And and he one day he just went ballistic because he didn't know why he was being pulled over. This is when Philando Castile, all these black drivers, he died, yeah. was pulled over. And so, you know, the trauma of that was a lot. And so, you know, no one ever apologizes for those types of right. things. And so you just get angry. Won and, the and, lawsuit and, every, and he will not come and just say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have did that. The right. judge told you wrong. Right. Everybody say you wrong. You supervise the system. They pay me. Everything and you still just won't look me in the face and say, "Man, I'm so I should have just gave you your stuff back and let you go. I had no reason to want to search the car or even pull you over." Right. I and you can hear, that. and you can hear the pain that you're still it's in right pain. now. Yeah, yeah. I want to be yeah. restored so, before so, I forgive him. Yeah, I gotta forgive you so, for and, something. And, so and the notice how becomes, his 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 feeling. He's forgiving oh, yeah. the young man who yeah. shot a woman. So the question who shot for his me, kid. But his anger towards the societal structure so, that's that right. accused him it changed. falsely And that's what your question switched. And that's why and your that's question. Between Lou, Lou and I wanted yeah, the same and that's on why, that issue. And that's why your question was so profound that when you sparse it out, you have mm-hmm. the, the personalized and you have the institutional. So the yeah. question for you is, uh, back to what the sister has said, what are you doing proactively to feed your spirit to not have that incident become part and partial of your spirit because when we came in it was great for you and i to reconnect in this space because mm-hmm. we know each other you gave me a hug and i actually needed that hug because i might be going through something and then we're sitting here with our colleague here sherry just her essence Lose her, on here yeah Lose on here sherry her essence her smile just being on this show but your pain just was manifested right here now mm-hmm. so what are you doing in a proactive manner that can help reconcile your humanity yeah, so that and, that cop and doesn't I want to ask Lou the same question because he was trying to get it out Lou please cuz you were still you were trying to explain and I know when you're not when you're on the phone right. it's hard to get sure. your words in yeah. you were trying to explain to us why you know this accusation was extremely painful for you the same way uh, Daiwan getting pulled over repeatedly by police was extremely painful for him. Just because it was it was my character, you know. I, I do want to say something, and and because it is hard to believe. How do you forgive somebody who shot you versus somebody who stole from you? At that moment, sitting in the bed fifty days and not knowing how was how was I going to come out of this, I had to let something go. You know, mm-hmm. I had to let this pain, I had to let this hurt go. And I, I you know, I, I prayed to God, and and and. When I started writing my letter of forgiveness to them, it was it was that I I felt the difference. And at this point, I've been going through a lot of stuff. I have agencies who failed me, you know. And at this moment, when my check was stolen, I was furious, and, and I and I did I did hold that. And it's going to take time, you know. It's like like you said, it's different levels of forgiveness. Not everybody is willing and ready, you know. And and I, I think I've been through so much to sit there and turn around and say this guy not only stole five thousand dollars from me. I mean, he stole. And you my needed identity. it. Yes, I'm, I'm, I haven't worked for a year now, and sold my identity, and and now I have this this agency, this higher up agency, and I have this this older white lady that's supposed to be helping me now, telling me that my check was cash right, and I cashed my check. Yeah, and I'm like, well, how do you know that? You know, how do you know that I did that? And and it was like, no, this guy, you know, it's not that I don't forgive him; it's that no, you got to be held accountable for this because right. yeah. now I'm being looked at like I'm. 
like I'm deceased. And, and you were like, a victim of a crime. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I, it's his victim compensation is supposed to be helping me. But now you're, you're I, I question like who's the victim in this situation now? Yeah. And sister, I mean, talk about this. I mean, this isn't just a religious position. This is a societal position. People do treat different, you know, an attack on your character is somehow taken more personally than an attack on your person. And how do we how do we reconcile all of this? Yeah, I think the attack on character really wounds us interiorly mm. in a way that even a, a body um, harm uh, doesn't create the same sense. Uh, they're destroying uh what I hold dearest, and that is my character. Character. That's all uh, I my have character. Left. That's all I have. They took everything and, else. And actually, it's it's creating this sense this sense of inequity that we have to correct. Because one of the things I think is important for us as an American nation is that we all need a spirit of humility mm. to say that we are not better than anyone else. And we are not less than anyone else. If we could stand on equal ground. And once um, Lou was accused of actually having a part in this fraudulent activity, in this this crime, he was really uh, put down. You know, his character was really lessened. And that needs to be restored. And that does something to your spirit. It, absolutely. That, and there, there's a reason why. Why does he feel that anger? That's a justified anger. Mm. And, and that's an anger that we need to help each other deal with because that can help us to be constructive agents to reform the wrong that the system has created. Yes, and, There's so much about that that I think is true about racism in this country. And one of the things that um, I think, uh, you know, I was hearing Chad ask Dewan about in terms of the cop who pulled him over, you know, just racial profiling just in our city is just appalling. And one of the reasons I think that we have to deal with white privilege more head on is because we have created an imbalance. And Brian Stevenson, who works so hard in um, in just our criminal justice reform, but actually in trying to get us to face racism in our nation. Yeah. He talks about the victims of white privilege that he can understand why white kids growing up in a culture that tells them they're entitled to be dominant over others, he actually has empathy for them because they've grown up with that sense that they are superior. That falsehood. It's a falsehood. Yeah. Yeah. And until we can change all that, uh, we will have... Police officers calling over, you know, poor, innocent, you know, black faces driving a car. And the yeah. psychological it, toll that it takes on, on us because. And I all, think that psychological injury. And I mean, we didn't even go into sexual crimes yeah. because a lot of that is even though you may not physically you're you're psychologically right. harmed. Yeah. And so that psychological um, and it's almost like the, the, the crime against your character, the crime mm-hmm. against your your psychology yeah 
is more egregious in many ways than the, the physical right. crime against your body. Yeah. And yeah. I think one of yeah. the things... Wounds we can't see. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things we can learn historically is the example of what happened in Rwanda um, around restorative justice and the example of the Faith and Reconciliation Tribunals that happened post-apartheid with uh, Des- Bishop Desmond Tutu and others. And I think we can look at those models because in Rwanda, you're sitting across the table from a person who chopped off your mother's head. And you still have to see their humanity. That's very hard. But I think that uh, it's, yeah. it, but it's, yeah. a, it's a discipline of your spirit. It's a discipline of your spirit. And that's why I'm always promoting a higher level of humanity where you can step outside and, and I'm of quick Because we're about to wrap it up. But I want to quickly shift to the fact that you have to go into communities, Chad, that yeah. are in the throes. I mean, uh, a whole out mob yeah. violence could break out, and you got to go in there and quell and, and quiet it down. You're absolutely right, uh, Sherry. When I went to the state, we had a town hall that we built as a no-hate-in-our-state town hall, and there was a gentleman who was the Grand Dragon from the Hershey Ku Klux Klan, and mm-hmm. he wanted to speak. And the people in the audience at the Crispus Attic Center in York, PA, said, don't let him speak. And I said, let him speak. And it wasn't about First Amendment rights. It was more about, I have to even see his humanity, even though he's a Klansman. Right. One of my African-American staff, she told me, she said, boss, people on Facebook Live said that you were in the sunken place like, you know, the movie Get Out. And I said, I wasn't in the sunken place. I've had to get to that point. Coming from North Philadelphia, I've not always been in that point. But it's growth and maturation. And the maturation for me is a spirit. Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, quick points. I know Lou Dewine, Darwan, both of you have had to been in situations where you've had to forgive people, also seek forgiveness. Um, If you had a quick lesson that you would like to to add there before we close this up, tell me what it is. Tomorrow's not promised. I mean, in in order to have your own peace of mind sometime, in order to have your own sanity, you're going to need to um, move in the direction of learning how to heal. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is a part of healing. Yeah, and Lou, I mean, I know you're still struggling with that when it comes to this agency, but you kind of released it. Do you think that if they found your gunman and he was placed in front of you, that that, that forgiveness that you've given to him, you would still be able to, to provide that? Forgiveness, yes. I, I can forgive him. But the justice part, if, if he were to be caught, yes, I, w- I would have to stand up and let justice do what they do, you know, but it doesn't stop forgiveness we all have to be uh, held accountable for our, our wrongdoings you know yes that's right but i'm not i'm not for retaliation and then i could have went that route but i chose not to and because this is flashpoint we do need to wrap this up forgiveness council culture reconciliation how do we balance the need to punish people who do wrong with the desire we all have to make sure that one moment one mistake does not define us for our entire lives. Certainly, very briefly, for me, it's not about retribution, it's about restorative justice. We have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to step in a place of healing to the point where we can uh, open our ears and allow ourselves to move to that space. Once I decide that I want to be a forgiver, I need to practice it each and every day. And I need to create a culture where we lean in the direction of forgiveness and not revenge. Thank you so much to Sister Kathy Nerney, to Chad Dion Lasseter, Diwan Williams, and to Lou Berrios for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you so much for Thank having me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Next up, she wants borrowed and scammed to feed her opioid habit. I was a functional addict for 10 years, and I looked beautiful. From addict to advocate, a New Jersey woman shares her story. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? 
please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week got a wake-up call 10 years ago when she was found by police in the middle of the night asleep in her truck outside of a Bucks County grocery store. At the time, she was in the throes of opioid addiction. Shakesha Ellis made headlines when she lost her hearing because of that addiction, but she has since found her voice. She's a certified family recovery specialist. She's an addiction recovery advocate. She's an author, blogger, and motivational speaker. Shakesha Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. This past August 8th, nine years of long-term recovery. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. So I want to take a step back. You're a preacher's daughter, well-educated, your mother, minister, all these things. How in the world did you get addicted to opioids? It was in 2001. I had a great job. I was living in Northeast Philly. One day I was going to a school to see a client and I fell down some steps And I injured my knee. That slip and fall down those steps changed my life forever. At that point, I realized that my knee wasn't healing. So I went to see a doctor, and they wound up telling me I have to get surgery for a meniscus tear. Mm -hmm. So I never had any prior surgeries to this. But I got the surgery, and my life changed forever after I was given a prescription for 120 Lorset hydrocodone. And so you took the hydrocodone. Next thing you know, when did you realize you were addicted? I don't know. I still think about that now, and it's been Mm -hmm. so many years ago. I started taking the medication, looked at the bottle, and it said, take one every four to six hours. I never had did drugs in my entire life, never drank, never did anything. So I started taking them, but I realized that I liked at some point how they made me feel. I don't know where it, it, when it happened. I think it maybe had been like a few weeks or a month, and I was just like, I really like this. So I was like, you know what, today I'm going to take two more instead of one. So I just started taking more to up the good feeling that I was getting. It, was, it wasn't like I ever knew that I had an addiction, so I wasn't, like, trying to get high. So next thing you know, you're taking how many pills? Over the months, it just turned chaotic. I was going through different phases where I would start getting sick, and so I was still seeing the, the surgeon that did my surgery, and he sent me to an orthopedic specialist to follow up for therapy. So I was getting the same script from both doctors. I was just loving how they made me feel, so I went from one every four to six hours, two, three, four, five, Oh, this, this is over years period of time. And within this time period, I was doctor shopping in multiple states. I, got, I hopped on a, a, a flight to go to Atlanta to see a doctor at a pain management center to get paint, to get opioids. You were not one of these people getting your, your pills off the street. You were getting this from legitimate sources. I never bought drugs off the streets. I did everything in the pharmacies and through doctor's offices. And at some point, my name came up in the DEA database because they thought I was running a prescription drug ring. They didn't know what this, this one person in this pharmacy is getting flagged at all these different pharmacies for the same script. And or, how could you afford this, though? Because insurance only pays for so many Once a month, right. Yeah. So I had friends, boyfriends. I was just borrowing money from everybody. People really didn't know what my situation really was. So, And I would tell people I was sick, I have to go to the doctors. They didn't really know that I was supporting, unbeknownst to me still, a habit, mind you, this was in the beginning of the opioid crisis. This was in 2000, 2001, in the early years. But as the years went on, like 2005, 2006, my only goal was to get more doctors. If I went into a doctor's office and they said, uh, Miss Ellis, we heard that a pharmacy called and said you were getting the same prescription at another pharmacy, so we have to, we have to drop you. 
And so you would just go to another one. I would get another doctor. I would look online, ride through neighborhoods, put on my GPS and just get on 476, get off of the highway and just find random doctors walking with a knee brace on, telling them that my doctor was on vacation and I needed to get my, um, I had my um, medical records copy. My life Girl, was crazy. This was like a hustle for you. It was more than a hustle. It was my life. Take us back to that night. You were at a grocery store in Bucks County. On 611. Sleep. In my truck. Going through withdrawal because I was trying to get a prescription filled at, at the market, super, at the supermarket chain pharmacy. I went in with a prescription that I had changed something on it myself to try and get them to fill it. And the pharmacist was like, we cannot fill this. Like literally a month ago, prior to that, I had lost a lot of doctors at once. I was desperate and I was going through withdrawal and I was like, oh my God, I have to get this filled. So I went back in my truck, laid down in my truck. I had a brand new Land Rover truck. And I laid down in my truck and I started going through the withdrawal. I was very sick. Withdrawal is crazy. And I understand why it's so hard for people to get off of the drugs. The withdrawal will make you want to kill yourself by alone. So you get into recovery and eventually this sort of changes your whole life. Recovery changed my life. I tell people all the time, never give up on your loved ones. I mean, if if you have someone that's struggling with substance use disorder, it's so important that you know how to deal with them. You don't have to support their habits and all those things, but give them hope. Let them know that when they're ready to make that change, you're going to be there, and you're going to be there for them. For me, it was so many layers to recovery. There are so many layers to recovery. It's a lot. I'm just talking the physical, the mental, the psychological parts of it. Just everything you do in your life, the whole fabric of it, it has to be repatched together like a puzzle. Everything has to go back in place, and it takes time for that. Yeah, and so, and I know your family, religious family, how did they take it? Because a lot of it is, you don't want nobody to know. Yes, and, and I know in my daily life, I meet people every day that I see with addiction, but I can just look at them and tell. I can just, when you go through some things in your life, you can look at people and tell they walked in your shoes before. So for me, I, I hit everything. That's why my book is going to be called Addicted in Silence. Yeah. I was addicted in silence, and my dad was a bishop. He passed away in 2017. I was clean for seven years before he passed away. So he he saw me in my recovery, but he didn't know. And my mom, no one knew. They didn't know that I was addicted to opioids. No one knew. That is so wild because it's like you hear from so many people having dealt with this issue and we wonder how they're able to keep it secret for so long. But you were you were not on the street. You were literally getting prescriptions. I was functional. I had a full-time job. Full-time job the whole time. Yes. Then... You lose your your hearing. I don't think most people realize this is a direct result, in some cases, of opioid addiction. Tell us about your finding out that this was related. In 2009, I started going deaf. My hearing started, like, muffling. It was going through different phases. I was going to an audiologist in Burlington County, and the audiologist was telling me things like, I don't know what's going on with your hearing, but every time I went back, it was getting worse. So he was like, we're going we're gonna to fit you for hearing aids. So I was just like, I don't want to get that. Like, I'm going to be looked at like an old woman. Like, I was so depressed going through this phase of my life. I didn't understand it. But I got to a point where I was like, okay, I, I want to get these hearing aids. I have to hear again. I lost my hearing fully in seven months. How did you know it was tied to the opioid addiction? One of the final visits that I had with this audiologist. So he said to me, Miss Ellis, I don't know. What's happening? Hearing loss does not run in your family. You are suffering with profound hearing loss. Are you on any drugs? And I told him, no, 
but I still continued using the opioids a year after I went deaf. I didn't get clean until 2010. I, yeah. The audiologist told me, he said it was from a drug. What drugs are you taking? Are there any medications? I told him nothing. But when I put two and two together, one of my other primary doctors told me that he couldn't prescribe any more Lorset because I went deaf. I was going deaf from them. And so some opioids cause deafness. If you take uh, if you take them in massive amounts, opioids suppress everything in your body. You know, your hearing is, is very sensitive. The blood flow to your um, hearing situation is very sensitive. And opioids stop everything in your body. They, they opioids suppress the I blood mean, flow. So basically, it suppressed the blood flow to the inner ear, and over time, your inner ear went dead. Yes, from the lack of oxygen, the lack of blood. Yes, and now you you have no hearing whatsoever. You had to get cochlear implants. Implants, Yes, to be able to hear. I was deaf for four years, though. Wow, I was deaf from two thousand and nine to two thousand and thirteen till I had my first child. That is how I learned what a cochlear implant was. I never knew. No one ever said to me that you will ever hear again. People were saying to me, learn sign language and learn how to lip read. And I learned a little bit of of sign language and I learned how to lip read somewhat, but it's very hard. And so then your son was two years old before you heard his voice. When I had my son, he was born 24 weeks guest station on an ambulance. I was deaf the whole time. Everything I was doing was on TTYD phones, TTDY phones. Um, in In my home, um, smoke detectors, fire alarms, doorbells, baby monitors. Everything was for the deaf and hard of hearing before I brought him home from the NICU. He was in the NICU for six months. Wow. Yes, I never heard his voice so he was two. Wow. Your hearing has since been restored because of the implants. And now you are a certified family recovery specialist yes, working with people who are going through recovery. I found my passion in my recovery. I've been clean since 2010. I didn't become a public figure until I was so 2014, and I've been helping people all over the country from different countries get into, people are asking me, how'd you get off of them? I cold turkey. I didn't follow a 12-step regimen, which is very controversial. And so I say to people all the time, there are many pathways to recovery. So whatever your pathway is, that's your pathway. But you can't look down on someone and say, oh, well, you're not in the 12-step program. So, you know, we're looking at you at a different, as, in a different way. Yeah, but you were able to sustain that. I, Not I everybody can do that. I think uh, was John Coltrane did the, did the did the cold turkey. I watched a documentary on his I life. Never knew that he was in the he was on full blown heroin. I loved him. And I loved him. He cold turkey and um, was able to get I mean, off of drugs. Wow! And he tried it multiple times, and the last time he did it, he got off and he he was clean. It's miraculous. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's hard because you have to deal with walking through. It's like walking through a dark tunnel. I spoke at a um, a friend of mine have a, a rehabilitation place in Nendenwald, New Jersey, and I spoke to some people in recovery there. It was so passionate. The people in the group that I talked to, I said, listen, when you take the steps to go into recovery, it's like walking through a dark a dark pathway. And it's like, you just have to put your faith up. You don't know what's expected on that road ahead. You don't know. You just have to walk and you have to go with the flow and see what happens. And see what happens. You have been a national, on a national level, recognized, gone to national conferences, spoken, uh, representing representing New Jersey. Yes. You also have launched a blog. I've been blogging since 2014, but now it's on my website, chasenomore.org. Chase, and what does chase no more? What does that phrase mean for you? Chase no more. When I got clean, I didn't think I would ever want to be a public figure. I just wanted to get off the drugs. I was so miserable. 
And I said to myself, I just want to be clean. That is it. But as time went on and people started reaching out to me and I'm in all these newspapers and Recovery Today magazines um, featured me for September, for the month of September. So I'm just like, okay, you know, this, this is it's, it's something more to this. What do I need to do? And then I started helping other people and my passion came and I was like, okay, it was meant for me to go through everything for you. Because there's some people that's going to get into an accident or get a tooth pulled or their kid's going to be in a, um, a soccer accident or a cheerleading accident. And they're going to give, the doctor's going to say, here, here's some opioids. Here's 120 Loracet or Percocet. And what I'm telling you in advance could help them. To say, no, don't do this. And so um, I, I got to ask you because... One of the issues that we try to talk about is because you're an African-American woman and the face of opioid addiction does not look like you. And so a lot of people in communities of color think, you know what, this doesn't apply to me. But there's a culture where people using Percocets. It's actually in rap songs. It's in videos. It's in everything. It's in everything. And it's actually a growing phenomenon that I think gets ignored quite a bit. Could you talk about that? Listen, a lot of people get upset with me when I say black woman opioid crisis. I'm the face of of the black community as well as the face of the United States of everybody that's addicted to opioids. I was a functional addict for 10 years and I looked beautiful. My hair was done. My nails was done. I was going to work every day. I was sharp as a tack, but I was at home throwing up in the mornings when I didn't have my pills. So when I say things like I am the face of the black community as well, because there's a lot of things happening in, in Philadelphia, PA. So I'm working with a lot of activists there, too, here in Philadelphia. There are so many things happening. But people look at me like, okay, you're not supposed to talk about the fact that you're a black woman and that, you know, you are addicted to I You know what I call myself? I'm the first woman black opioid activist. <laughs> I mean, I don't see you know, no one out here like me doing what I do. And we had a, a, a man on the show last year. His sister died of opioid overdose and he put it in her funeral program. And because a lot of their friends and she was 22, left her child motherless. I, he was like all these people are popping perks at parties. They don't say perks equal opioid addiction could lead you down the track the, the path to heroin. Yes. You I mean you were more affluent. Yes. Where you had a job educated robbing around in a in a Range Rover or whatever. Yes. But there's a lot of people who don't have that kind of money and end up on the street. They go straight to heroin. That's the next step. If you can't cuz now the DEA has cracked down on the systems. Everything yeah. is tied yeah. in. If you go to CVS or Pathmark, I was going to every pharmacy with a face, every grocery store chain. If you go in now and they'll say, "Okay, well, we, we can't, they're not, I don't even think, some doctors are still giving out 120. I had doctors give me 180. In one month, I possessed 1,300 pills. 1,300 pills. You were the underscore epitome of what the problem was at the time, that people were able to do this. Right. And that's why opioid addiction kind of exploded. So um, I had to ask you that question because I'm I feel like so many. Yeah, I am the face because there are many functional people in the communities that look like me, that get up and go to work. They live in the inner city, and they are fighting for their lives. Someone reached out to me this morning on my Instagram saying, I want to meet you. I want to talk to you immediately. Someone from Philly. Yeah. And all my family's from Philly, so I know. You got a book coming out. Yes, I'm working on a book project for 2020. People are waiting to see what the story is. What really happened behind all those years in that glass house when I was kicking them doors and no one saw me. Yeah. So Addicted in Silence 
Uh, it's going to be your memoir that you're working on now. Yes. I wish you luck and give people uh, your website where they can get in touch with you. ChaseNoMore.org. Wonderful. So I want to wish you luck because um, I know you're going to hit that 10-year mark. That's a major uh, milestone in recovery. And I want to wish you luck in continuing to inspire people uh, and fight this opioid addiction. This yes. is a crisis in our community and all communities and we all need to work together. Everybody, Shakesha Ellis, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to finally have met you. Thank you. Next up, he was an eyeglass tech. Now he's a doctor with vision to provide sight to all. It's very, very, very fulfilling. A Germantown eye doc and his effort to get free eye care. We'll be right back. If you like what you hear, you may want to stick around and take a listen to some of the past episodes of Flashpoint. We also produce weekly Flashpoint extras, which are exclusive for you guys, the Flashpoint family. Some of my favorites include the debate over the Byron Allen $2 billion lawsuit against Comcast. We have David L. Cohen, the third top guy with the company, on the show exclusively. Other podcasts that I love, we did one on what to do if your kid goes missing, we've also talked about when a crash, a car crash becomes a crime. Another episode or extra you might want to check out is my interview with Dr. Youssef Salam of the Central Park Five or the Exonerated Five. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review and let us know what you think. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. An optometrist by day, a community leader by night. This doctor wants to provide the gift of sight for everyone. Our Patriot Home Care Changemaker of the Week is owner of Nostalgic Eye Care. And he's here to tell us more about his vision of eye care for all. Dr. Kennard Herring, welcome to Flashpoint. Uh, thank you, Sherry, for having me. So I met you at the Business Center's annual gala. You were being honored, and your story is amazing. First of all, tell us how you got into eye care. Well, I got into eye care sheerly by luck. I was actually in community college, and I took on civil engineering, and I didn't do so great at physics. I actually fell out of that program my first year, and I went through the um, program book in that community college, get into something that I could get like a quick two-year degree. And it said ophthalmic dispensing, which led to making eyeglasses. To kind of make a long story short, I worked as an optician after I graduated that program. I saw the impact that optometrists made on people in the community, and I decided to pursue a career in optometry. And became Dr. Yes. Herring. Yeah, yes. that's really, really awesome. So you decided very early on that giving back would be a big part of what you do. Why? Well, I wouldn't have become an optometrist unless somebody provided an opportunity for me. You know, realizing how fortunate I was to get the opportunity to become an optometrist let me know that I have to pay it forward. I have resources, access, experience, and I just have to try to open some doors for them and give them opportunity. And so what do you do at your events that helps to promote this eyesight for all? So what I try to do in my events is use my office as a platform to help other business owners get some exposure. And I also try to prevent visual barriers for people who are trying to excel, especially like children. Uh, children face a lot of visual barriers. To have access to eye care is important for them and actually could help them um, excel in their academics. 
So give me an example of a visual barrier. Layman's term is lazy eye. The lazy eye term kind of get thrown around very loosely. Amblyopia is where they may not be able to see too well in, in one eye. A lot of children fall victim to this because in the school system or at the pediatrician, they just do a simple visual check. And a child could easily cheat on that exam and they cannot see well in one eye, see well in the other and pass that screening. Educating the public how important it is to um, bring children to get their eyes checked so we could prevent amblyopia from happening just by providing eyeglasses at an early age. And that's just one example of what you do. So you use your office and then you also help kids get access to eye care. And so you have an event coming up called the Gift of Sight Initiative And it'll be happening at your uh, location at 6656 Germantown Avenue. What is this event about? So this event is, uh, this is our second year having this event. And this event is pretty much to give the opportunity for anybody who is in need of eye care and eyeglasses the opportunity to get it at no charge. So we are just donating our services to help anybody out there that may be in need of, of eye care. We are particularly targeting children, people who are in shelters, or who are just in need, period. Wow. And you're doing this over the Martin Luther King holiday. Tell us about the dates and times and everything. Well, it's MLK weekend, right? It's, it's, a, it's an act of service. MLK represents service and, and self-sacrifice for a greater cause. And I figured it would be no better weekend to do it than, than MLK weekend. Yeah. And so January 18th and 19th um, from nine to five, you don't get donating 16 full hours of time. And you go to the nostalgic eye care at 6656 Germantown Avenue in Philadelphia. And tell me, what does it do to you to see someone in need, you know, get the eye care that they need and walk out being able to see a little bit better? It's very, very, very fulfilling. I never thought I'd be in a position to provide a service as such to, to anyone. I come from humble beginnings, and I've I've seen what it's like to not be able to get service or resources. And to be the one to actually provide it is is very rewarding. Yeah. You got an award with the Business Center, also based in the Germantown area, because of your story, because of the fact that you started working and then went back and decided, you know what, I'm going to, you know, go back, get the education, and I'm going to open up my own business. So you're a businessman, too. Yeah, you know, and I was a surprise to me, but I've actually seen how impactful you can be in a community when you have the freedom to provide a program such as Gift to Sight and and how a, a small business can, can impact the community. Yeah, so. yeah. And so you also have all kinds of events. So check you out uh, during the year. You have stuff where you do financial literacy, uh, trunk shows uh, for folks. I mean, you do all kinds. You have host all kinds of events at your location. Yes, again, it, it's it's for everybody, right? So whoever has something going on, uh, if we could educate in certain areas, you know, I try to work as, as a team with other people in the community and, and use my platform um, as a resource for them to get their message out and to impact others. So Wonderful. And so tell people, do you have a website? Where can people get in contact with you? Yes, so we have a website, um, nostalgiceyecare.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at NostalgicEyeCare.com. Um, you could definitely Google us. You could give us a call at 215-842-5939. If you have any questions or want to schedule an appointment, 
we are open to the community and we look forward to hearing from you guys. Absolutely wonderful. So January 18th and 20th from 9 to 5, the Gift of Life Initiative. Come check them out. Thank you so much to Dr. Kennard Herring for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this wonderful issue in the news. No problem. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Christian author and ethicist Louis Schmeeds once said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.